The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. It's exciting to see what God continues to do in the life of our church. I hope that you've seen that, and you can. I'm not going to keep showing it week to week, but um, it's on the website. You can go and look and be reminded. God's at work. You ever wondered sometimes when you look around and you go, what's, what's really happening? God's at work here, and we're going to be encouraged today by His Word of how God is moving and working in the lives of our people uh, and how He challenges us to keep going. Uh, so before we do that, kids, you are invited, and parents, you're invited to let your kids go with Mr. Patrick over there, and they will take good care of them uh, for you today. You know, this week, I'm reminded of what ministry, at least what a glimpse of ministry can be like. You know, on Monday afternoons, we've got 50 to 60 or so kids that come across with the uh, Ask uh, ministry, and they hear about uh, the gospel, and it's exciting, and it's loud, and I have to leave my office on Monday afternoons, so I can't get anything done, but it's fun to see those kids there. And on Tuesday, a group that comes over and with uh, Childhood Evangelism Fellowship. And then on Wednesday, it was, uh, there were you know, 30 or 40 women who were coming in in the mid-morning. And it's, again, it was loud but exciting uh, to see what God's doing. Uh, it's fun to watch. And then the women gathering this weekend and men gathering on the different mornings of the week to study and pray. Uh, God's at work uh, in the lives of our people. And what we want to do as a church body, collectively together, is not only look at at a moment in time now and say, okay, here's where we are, but to really ask larger questions. I, I think part of my role in your life as I'm your pastor is to help you ask better questions. Uh, to ask, God, what do you really want to see happen in my life? How do you want to use me to make an eternal difference in this world in the time that I'm here? What do you want to see happen in my marriage? Do I just want a marriage that makes it? Or, God, do you want to do something more in my marriage to have it be a marriage that sings? God, what do you have for me? What do you have for our church? Because the things that we've been discussing... Some of the stuff that you saw on the screen. The statistics in America today are that 80% of our churches are in decline. That hundreds of churches close their doors every single week. So all the things that we're talking about, I promise you, 80% of pastors in America today would love to have the conversations we're having. Of what do we do with the people that are coming? Well, what do we do about expanding ministries? What do we do to have a larger impact for the kingdom of God and the community where he's placed us? I promise you uh, there are pastors around. I was in a pastor's home my whole life. And I remember my dad coming home for eight years uh, in a ministry in Charlotte, North Carolina, wondering, why am I still in ministry? The church was declining. Uh, that people wanted to grow, but they didn't want new people to come around, which is an interesting problem to have. Uh, they were envious of the massive Baptist church down the road. And my dad would continually come home until one day he came home at lunchtime. And my mom said, well, aren't you going back? He said, no, I quit. I'm done. If that's the gospel ministry, I don't want to have anything to do with it. My dad would be amazed 
at what's happening in this church. Be in a place where people actually love one another. People enjoy getting together, uh, and people enjoy serving and gathering and, and, and doing life together. Guys, you have something special here. We may not realize it, but we have something special here. My friends keep telling me and asking me in ministry, so when's the other shoe going to drop, Bill? And I keep telling them, there is no other shoe, as far as I'm concerned. We've got this awesome God who continues to provide for us in the midst of whatever situation we're in. And so where we're finding ourselves today in the life of this church, I'm not good at sort of superlatives and hyperbole to say this is the most important day in the life of this church. I'm not ready to say that, but it's a significant day in the life of this church. And uh, what we're going to look at is how is it that God takes what we have and uses it for his kingdom. If you've got your Bibles, you can flip over to 2 Corinthians 8. And then we're going to go over to 2 Corinthians 9. It'll be up on the screen for you. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. And he's writing to the Corinthian church, which was a church of means. It was a church uh, that was in a city and a place where uh, there were lots of folks there. They had a bunch of crazy stuff going on, but there were a lot of things happening. And he uses as an example in the middle of his letter to the Corinthians a group of people, of Christians from another area, from Macedonia, another part of the ancient Near East and the Mediterranean rim. And he begins to talk to those of means by speaking to those who have absolutely nothing but to get the gospel. And this is what he begins to say. I want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out, completing it out as what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now to chapter 9, picking up in verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each must 
give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, as it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. He will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By the approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is God's word. May I add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. Father, come now and bless us afresh and anew with your presence. Open our minds and our hearts that we would hear by your Spirit ministering to us through your Word. To Christ be the glory in all things. Amen. You know, we've been looking and saying, how is it that we're going to have an impact? We've said that we want to impact the individual lives of the people in our church. We want to see your lives trans- excuse me, transformed. We want to see that because you are here, and that you come and you participate in the life of Hillhead Presbyterian Church, there's a transformation that happens in your own life. Why is it important for you to be transformed individually? Well, the fact of the matter is, you can't give away that which you don't have. If your life hasn't been transformed, if your life hasn't been changed and is being continually changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, then there is really no need for us to move on to the next thing, and that is impacting our community. Because what are we going to give away to our community? We're going to give away to our community something that sounds awful like this, if you're awful lot like this, if your life isn't being transformed. Hey, you should come to our church. Hey, you should love Jesus, because if you love Jesus, you don't go to hell, but in the meantime, it just stinks. <laughs> you got to give away money. You can't drink. You can't go have sex. You can't do all this. It's just this restrictive code of, of life and this moral uh, heavyweight laid on top of you. But hey, at least you get to go to heaven in the end. Want to come to church with me? We'll have absolutely no impact. So first and foremost, we have to be changed and transformed individually to see a joy that happens in our lives, to be seen in us an incredible humility that says, because God, who is rich in mercy, was willing to save a person like me. So I did nothing on my own except bring all the bad stuff to the table. And he brought all the beauty and the righteousness of Christ to that. And he took on my sins so that I could become the very righteousness and joy of God himself. That I can then go out in this world with a hope that because of the transforming power of, of the gospel in my own life, it has the transforming power in anyone's life. And therefore, I'm a hopeful person that doesn't get so caught up in the days of, of Wall Street and in the days of Washington, D.C. and in the days of Hollywood and in the days of what's happening everywhere in the world. I'm not so caught up. I'm interested in those and I want to be informed about those things, but those do not define me. I have a hope in this life that because of the power of the gospel, it can transform every place that it goes. And therefore, I go. I go into the neighborhoods. I go into my neighborhoods. I go into my families. And I live a life that exudes the beauty of the gospel itself. In the hope that God would move to transform our community. 
our lives, that we say about our church, that we want to be a church that would be missed if we closed our doors. That we would be a church that gave away so much of itself in the community that people would go, that church, that church is having a profound impact in the, in the community for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then from that, we expand, and not just our, as we talked about last week, not just our Jerusalem, but we move out into Judea and Samaria, into the areas that we didn't like and that we're not used to, in the areas that maybe are different from us. You remember in the Gospels, Samaria was a place of basically uh, the half-bloods. They were Jews who had intermarried with pagans, and so a good formal Jew, a good church person, wouldn't even step foot in Samaria. They would go, oh, those people are racially different from us. They are socially different from us. We're not going to go there. And Jesus said, I want you to go exactly there. I want you to have an impact there. And then from there, I want you to go into all the ends of the world. And that's what we're doing. We want to have that kind of impact. Now, how do we do it? We're going to have to do it through the generosity of the people who are gathered here today. That's what Paul said. Paul said, there are needs within the kingdom ministry. There are needs within God's kingdom. And God could provide them in other and various sundry ways. If you're hungry today, God could, if he wanted to, walk out and you could see manna and quail on the ground, right? He could do that. There wouldn't need to be a hungry person in the world. But there is hunger and there is poverty in the world. And God's plan to deal with the hunger and the poverty in the world is not through civil governments. It is through the church. He's saying, I would love for my people who I feed daily with daily bread, who I provide for daily with everything they possibly could have. And I promise them that they would never, ever uh, be in want. I hope that my people get so confident in that, that they're willing to go out and take care of the needs of the world around them. So God has basically set up in his economy. This thing is driving me nuts. If my physical therapist wasn't around, I would throw it off. Um, but I would get in so much trouble. As we get excited about this, God's economy is this. He needs you. And he needs your generosity and mine to accomplish his ends. Does that make sense? And instead of seeing that as a burden, oh man, we're going to see that the people, at least in Macedonia, saw it as an incredible honor. God, that you would, in your divine wisdom, decide to use Bill McCutcheon and his household and the members and the guests of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church and their households to do something for the kingdom. And so we are coming today, and some of you have already in your mind fast-forwarded to the end of the sermon and to what I'm going to ask you to do is come up and make commitments. And you're going to go, hey, McCutcheon, Paul was talking about feeding starving people in Jerusalem. You're talking about building a building. So there's a huge difference. Bill, you're talking about apples and Paul's talking about oranges. I think, however, that we're talking in similar ways of this. What we're talking about doing here is that it's a launching point. That's so we can be even more impactful and extravagant and lavish in our ability to be generous elsewhere. That the two are tied together. Hey guys, let me just tell you this. I'll step back. If we don't add a square foot to this place, we're going to be okay. Do you, do you understand that? If we don't add another parking place uh, to this place, we're going to be okay. There'll be some issues, 
We won't be able to do a few things, but at the end of the day, we'll be okay. Just give us a feel, give me a voice, and let somebody continue to praise God in front of us and lead us in that. And somebody proclaim the word, then we're going to be just fine. But what we think is maybe God wants us to do something a little more than that. And so there's some things that hinder our ability to do that. And the first is we, we want to be generous. We want to be a generous people. But there are certain enemies to gospel generosity. That's the first point that we're going to look at this morning. There are enemies to the gospel uh, of generosity or to the generosity in the gospel. And that's just that's the first thing is there's an allure of wealth. There's an allure of wealth in our world. That somehow wealth, somehow status, somehow having things gives us security. That there's an allure and a temptation that comes. And that's because... Wealth isn't neutral. That, that Satan, the evil one, takes things that were designed for good and he twists them and turns them into idols that we worship and they promise us things that they were never designed to promise us. You realize that money was never, prom- never designed to promise us security. It was a means to an end. That sex was never uh, to promise us full, complete happiness and satisfaction. It was a means to an end and, and a beautiful blessing. Relationships and those kind of things, those are because of the effect of the fall, then turn on their heads so that they're negative. So there's this allure of wealth that somehow because we have this stuff, we're going to be okay. But what's happened is in First Chronicles 29, it, it says something like this. We forget the source of our wealth. Everything in heaven and on earth is yours, O Lord. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. Everything comes from you. And we have only given you what comes from your hand. The problem when we say that we have to have all of these things to be satisfied or that we've earned them is that we're forgetting who the ultimate source is on all this stuff. Everything that we have is God's. And he says, and don't forget that. That's why we do the tithe and offering each week. You do know that, right? It's not to fund the ministries of the church. The tithe and offering is much more of a spiritual exercise for the believer to come in and say, God, I'm giving you the 10%. I'm giving you my best and most so that I can be reminded that everything comes from you. And I can tell the world around me, I don't need all this stuff because I know that God will supply all of my needs. So it's the allure of wealth that materialism and greed are the things that drive us. There's a sermon that we put up on the website by Tim Keller, and he talks about gospel generosity, and he highlights in there uh, Colossians chapter 3. And he says this, he says, where your treasure is, he speaks, he's quoting Christ, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. He says, your money is an incredible way to find out what you're really serving. I actually have a friend, and I promise you this isn't going to happen here. He was in a small church in Mississippi. And the elders in part of the membership in, uh, inquiry actually went to their church and demanded that they sit down with their checkbook and walk through the last year of all of their finances. <laughs> that ain't going to happen in my life. Uh, but then I started thinking about it. Why wouldn't I want to show somebody my checkbook? Probably because it would expose me. It would expose what I'm really passionate about. It, it, it would expose where my heart really lies. And that's what he's saying, is be careful. Start to investigate your heart and look to see if there's any greed uh, within you. Because I've, I've heard a lot of people confess a lot of different things. But I very rarely hear people ever confess, you know, Bill, I've got a problem with greed. I'm a greedy person. You hear them talk about all kinds of other things. 
Not that. There are these enemies of the gospel. There's the allure of wealth that comes to us. That if we have it, we're going to be able to be fine and okay. Then there's the idol of identity, which is another enemy uh, to the gospel of generosity. The idol of identity. That we identify ourselves by what we have. That we look and see. Now I'm going to take you again back to the Old Testament. We're going to come to, to Corinthians in just a second. But go back to Abraham. And some of you are going out. The story is this. Abraham was a man who was a powerful man. Had been given incredible promises. But he had no son. He had no heir. And in that day and age and in that culture, you were identified as a man by the wealth that you had, by your cattle, by uh, your sheep, by your goats, by your camels, by all the stuff that you had. But more than anything else, you could have all of that junk. You could have all of that stuff, but if you did not have a male heir, you were considered impoverished. And so Abraham was given a son, Isaac. And he was, this is awesome, I have a son. But then all of a sudden in Genesis 22, he was willing to take his identity. He was willing to take the one thing that validated him in his culture as a successful man and put it on an altar and raise a knife against it and sacrifice it to the Lord. He was willing to do that. Why? In Hebrews, it explains it. It explains to us, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son, and it was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendant shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Abraham basically understood this. Even if I lose Isaac, God's promises will remain. Somehow God will act and somehow God will move. Even if everything in my limited knowledge, even if everything culturally tells me not to do it, I'm willing to do it. And so a great question for us today and a great question for you is, what's your Isaac? What's your Isaac? What is it that you've determined and bound your identity so closely to that you have to have it? And if you were to lose it, you would lose yourself. For some, it's your checkbook. For some, it's your spouse. For some, it's your child. For some, it's your job and status. Whatever it is, but wrestle with that question today and beyond today. What's your Isaac? And are you willing to lay that down in front of the Lord with the absolute confidence that even if God took that from you, His promises are sufficient enough for us? And so the allure of wealth, the idol of identity, and the power of fear and I'm not going to go into that because we all know what that looks like. The power of fear. What if I don't? What if I do? What happens then? And we get caught up in fear. You know what fear is and our anxiety about fear. It's basically us stepping back here, looking forward into the future and determining, God, if you do not act in the manner in which I've determined my happiness will be tied to, therefore I'm going to get all worried. So God, you need to act. It puts us in an incredible position, a prideful position and a powerful position of thinking that we know best. When God is saying, my perfect love casts out your fears. If you trust in me and you trust my love, then there's no fear. Anything can happen to you and you can trust me and I'll take away that fear. So there are real enemies to gospel generosity, the allure of wealth, the idols of identity, the power of fear. So what then is the motive for the gospel? 
Let's look here in, in chapter 8, verse 9. When, when he comes and he says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And then down in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 9, By their approval of this service, Get my notes right here. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The motive for the gospel is very simply this. You understand the immense generosity of God to you in Christ. There's no other motivation. We could go to the fact that what we've already talked about, that God owns everything anyway. Part of the motivation is it's all his, and all we're doing is being conduits and stewards of what he has. So we'll give it away. If he wants me to have a bunch of it, I'll be thankful to have a bunch of it. If he wants me to have a little bit of it, I'll be thankful to have a little bit of it. Or if I'm just middling in the middle, then I'll be happy with that. But I trust that it's all from him anyway. And so it's not up to me to determine how it's dispersed. I give it to him and trust that he's going to take care of it. So one of the first motives is that God's ownership of all things. But the greater motive where I really want us to spend our time today is this. The grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That grace makes a Christian want to be generous. And not just financially. Don't turn this to go, this is all about my Just to be generous. Generous with your time. Uh, I'll speak to those of you who are full-time workers in your home. Men and women. Sometimes it's hard to come home and then be generous with our time when we've given it all away at the office. When we've, when we've served and sacrificed there and then someone else needs our time and attention or our emotions or our compassion or whatever it is that we as Christians, when we have been overwhelmed and seen the incredible generosity that we've been given in Christ Jesus, it frees us to be incredibly generous to everyone who's around us. Incredibly compassionate. You know who Christ had to first be compassionate to? The person sitting in your chair. He didn't start with the person sitting next to you, by the way. He started with you. And when you begin to understand that, and we begin to understand that it's me, then how can I hold against someone else a wrong done? How could I be not generous and lavish and extravagant in my love for them, in my care for them? and my meeting of their needs, of stepping into their chaos and, and seeing it redemptively, of stepping into their lives and seeing it powerfully transformed by the gospel because that's exactly what Christ has done to me. See, that's what begins to motivate us and change us. You know, Paul doesn't come in here and he doesn't, uh, from a sermon that I read, in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul does not put pressure directly on the will. I'm an apostle and I command you to give. Or directly on the emotions. You have so much. And these poor people have so little. How can you neglect them? Rather he goes to their heart with the gospel. He says. If you don't want to give. You don't really understand the gospel of grace. You don't understand who you are. You don't understand what he's done. You may be trying to be your own savior. Rather than looking to Christ. By saving enough money to maintain security. In an unsecure world. Or you may be relying on people's approval. For your significance. Rather than looking to Jesus by living at a certain economic and material level. In any case, you are failing to remember the generosity of Jesus for you on the cross. Paul says that the only solution is to preach the gospel to your own heart until you want to give away your money. No other way will work. All other methods will produce superficial results. I love this last line. 
So in order to become a gracious, generous person, don't sit down with a calculator and look at a cross. If you're having a problem being generous in any area of your life, financial, emotional, spiritual, whatever it is, don't sit down with a spreadsheet. Sit down with the scriptures and look at a cross and then look at it again and then look at it again until it so washes over you that you say, how can I withhold anything from anyone else? How can I withhold my love for my spouse, my care for my child, my love for, I don't know if you noticed last week as you were leaving, uh, there was a, a gentleman named Tom who was on our property. Tom rides a bicycle. His teeth make me think that he's probably addicted to crystal meth. He's homeless and absolutely lost. And he stood right there as everyone left. And here's my question. I wonder how many people noticed him. If you've stared at a cross long enough, and then you look at Tom, you see yourself. And you see the fact that God, who was so rich in his mercy, didn't walk by you without noticing. But he came close and he said, What do you need? And he met our needs. But we'll never be generous with even our attention unless we viewed the cross. How many of you guys have some stuff in your lives that's pretty messy? Currently or previous? Few. Okay, we can start a messy ministry with those of you. I've got some stuff in my life that if I really shared with you, you'd probably go, hmm, hmm. This church sounded like a good idea. Bill seemed like a nice guy on the outside, but there's some pretty messy stuff that goes on in our lives, right? And you will never, ever, ever step into the mess of somebody else's life unless you believe that God has stepped into your mess and redeemed it. Then you're willing to say, and you're willing not to flinch. When someone shares with you something, here is the best way to get them never to share with you that again. Okay, here it is. Watch me. Ooh. <laughs> okay, if you don't want people coming to you uh, with any of their stuff, then do that the next time someone says, can I share with you something that's going on in my life? Sure, tell me. Ooh. Wow. And normally the next line for that person is, let me get you in touch with our pastor. Because somehow pastors aren't supposed to go, Ooh, wow. Plenty of times I go, wow, internally. But then I look at a cross. The generosity and the extravagant love of Jesus Christ on the cross changes us. It changes us forever in every area of our life. Now what we're highlighting today obviously is finances. It changes us in our financial way of approaching the world and approaching the needs of the world. And so we look and we stare at the cross the radical generosity of Christ leads us to become radically generous. What we see is that we were so precious to Jesus that he went to a cross on our behalf. That in Philippians 2, he said, I gave up more wealth than you could ever think of giving up. I gave up the splendors of heaven. I gave up equality with God to be there. I gave it all up to come and live among you so that I could redeem you. And in my poverty, I could make you wealthy. And I'm not talking about physical wealth. That you could be more wealthy than you ever dare dream or imagine. 
And so the motive today for all that we're talking about has to be the cross of Jesus Christ. John Piper wrote this, Christ Jesus died and rose again to make absolute certain that for all those who trust him, the all-powerful, all-owning God, who would be lavishly generous and lovingly hospitable to us every day forever. That is what Romans 12.1 is referring to. I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. The mercies of God were bought by the blood of Jesus, and they are new every morning with fresh generosity and fresh hospitality. This is how we become generous and hospitable. We enjoy and expect God's lavish help in all our giving and in all our hospitality. You see, the moralist looks at Jesus and says this, You owe me because of my obedience. The Christian looks at Jesus and says, I owe you because of your obedience. And so we come and we're going to ask the question, what's the impact that we can have? What's the impact that we can have for the folks in in, uh, Macedonia? It says this in verse 12 of chapter 9, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. What we're talking about and what we're seeing is this. In our generosity, two things happen. We make a physical impact. Lives can be actually impacted by it. But there is a blessing that comes and a thanksgiving that goes up. There's a spiritual dynamic to it as well. And it's interesting in this passage. Think about the Macedonians. I was talking to some folks recently. And there was an interesting logical argument that was being made that for the Macedonians they would have had absolutely no understanding of. The Macedonians basically looked and Paul said, they gave according to what they had and beyond what they had. And it said each man purposed in his own heart to give. And Paul even said, hey, listen, uh, in the end of chapter 2, he said, hey, I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. So he's basically saying this, I blessed you for a reason right now. It's so that you can be incredibly generous right now. So don't worry about what anybody else is doing. If you're somebody else being generous, guess what? You don't get to translate that and go, oh, that means I don't have to be generous. It's an amazing logic that happens in the fallen mind, isn't it? Oh, this is so incredible. Somebody wants to be generous. Good, I don't have to be. Paul is saying, oh, you've missed it. The beauty of someone else's generosity should spur you on to generosity. Because you never know when you might be in need and in need of someone else's generosity. That's how it's working in the economy of the gospel. And so what we're asking you today is simply this. This is when we'll get into the nuts and bolts of it. We're asking you to commit financially to the Lord. To see what we can do over the course of the next three years to change and transform our campus with some of the stuff that you see back there. To then be able from here to invite and to share with and see more and more people coming in to hear the gospel. Bigger isn't better. But we believe that as we continue to be healthy and grow in our health, and more people are going to want to come in and to hear about it. And from this place, go out into the community. We want to see people coming across the street. We want to see people in our community using our facilities. I just have this, I literally can't wait to see when Tim hits the ground here, Tim Pitzer, our new student minister, what's going to happen within the student ministry of our church, of what can happen to see lives transformed. A good friend of mine, um, his name's Tom. 
Tom is gauged and pierced and, and tattooed. And Tom was on the outside for his whole life in a broken alcoholic family. And there's a church, one of our sister churches in Monk's Corner, uh, up in Charleston area. And they had a Friday night volleyball ministry. And so here was this marginalized guy with tattoos and a busted up family and, and gauges before they were all cool. And he wandered in and he was loved. And he heard the gospel. And he was converted to Jesus Christ. And he's now married to Amy. And they have two incredible children. And he's pursuing the gospel ministry because of a simple, silly Friday night volleyball game. I hope we have lots of simple, silly things that students and their families can be impacted. And oh, by the way, Tom's parents are believers now. Because the church loved them and opened up their facilities for kids who didn't look like our kids, by the way. That's what we want to see happen. And the only way to get there is through your generosity. And some of you have said, and some of you have been around, Here, here's what I think. Our theology drives us in a certain way. And the one person in the entire universe who is not surprised that you're here is sitting on the throne in heaven. And so he has you here for a reason. And many of you have been around for a long time in different churches, and you've helped build other churches, and you've helped do that. And my, my encouragement to you is, well, he has you here for a reason too. And maybe it's to build one more before you go to be with him forever. And maybe you'll never get to experience all the fun that we're going to have on this campus over the next years. But boy, what a way to leverage what God's giving you in this life. And so we're asking you to come. And we're asking you to commit. And it may not be what you can give today. But it may be what you think, well, hopefully over the course of the next years, I'm going to start with this and then move forward. And we're going to see what God can do. Three million bucks is a lot of money. It is. I don't have it. I don't want it. But God has it. And I was talking to my good friend Todd Cullen today. And guess what's happening just around the corner on the island? Todd's coming in front of his congregation and he's saying, hey, we need to raise some money because God's blessing their ministry at Hilton Island, Hilton Head Island Community Church, and they're growing and they need to upgrade their facilities. So he's coming to his church and saying, we need to leverage the wealth of the people in our church and what God's blessed us with. And my other good friend, Jeff Cranston, uh, out at Low Country, is they're doing the exact same thing because God's bringing tons of people out there to that church and they're hearing the gospel. And so it's really exciting that there's churches in our area that are growing. And that God's doing an incredible thing with. And what I'd love to see is this. In our area, 90% of people are unchurched. That's a lot of people who need a church. And so we want to celebrate and pray for our brothers and our other churches that God would provide for their needs. Here's my hope. Elders, you can get on me later. I'm going to go ahead and say it. I'd love for so much money to come in today that we meet our needs, we take care of our debt, and we have enough to bless brothers and sisters at other churches to help them reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You talk about a statement in a community, about the kingdom working together. So, I'm not buying any new cars, and I'm not getting any new suits, because I don't like wearing them anyway, but someone said I look like a pastor today, so you're welcome. Um, <laughs> it's exciting to see what God's doing. 